This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. On this week's Lends Me Your Ears, we dive deep into hidden depths, a subgenre of suspense thrillers, submarine movies. So, submarine movies, <laughs> uh, maybe the most narrow of, uh, of, of genres that we could think of to talk about. They, and there is an argument to be made, and I think it has a lot of credence, that all these movies are pretty much the same movie. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of sweaty, desperate men in close quarters. Usually there's a technical failure where some men drown and part of the submarine must be sealed off in order to save the rest of yes. the men. Some, some sacrifice has to be made. At some point the red lights have to come on. That's right. The red lights have to come on. <laughs> Bathe everybody in red. Um, and usually a submarine goes down beneath a depth that it's supposed to. And everything starts to crack and yes. bend. Rivets pop out. Rivet and pops and people and the sweat, sweat and dripping and mixes with the sweat and the tears. Uh, and there are frequently antagonists within the submarine and without. Like there's there's some exterior force that wants to destroy everything. And then there's also, you know, some conflict within the submarine about what to do about it. Yeah, it's like the... Uh the uh, TV concept of what they call a bottle show where, <laughs> yes. you know, where they can come up with a, an episode of a sitcom or a TV show where they can just have everything happen in one location and just use one set. And it's, it's for reasons of economy. Although some of these sub, some of these sub movies can be quite expensive to make depending on how far they, the, the filmmakers want to go with them. But, uh, but at the same time, it allows you to, uh, to do something uh, with a very small space, very limited space, uh, and uh, get the maximum drama from yeah. from the idea of. I mean, it's funny in, in a sense. A submarine isn't a whole lot different than a spaceship. Uh, it's true, you know, but instead of a vast empty vacuum, you've got the opposite. You've got all the pressure crushing you in. So yeah. it's, instead of everything exploding. Uh, here you've got the the possibility of imploding. Just uh, just kind of takes that concept and flips it around. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, well, people have said that Wrath of Khan is a submarine movie. Certainly, for the Star Trek fans out out there, uh, one of our directors we're going to talk about uh, made the first Robert Wise. He made the first Star Trek movie, which wasn't really as much a submarine movie, but it did have some elements that could be compared to this genre. Um, but the reason we're talking about it is because there is one that has come out on DVD. Blu-ray and VOD, something called Black Sea, directed by Kevin McDonald, starring Jude Law, and uh, it's basically, I, I, I found, a, I, I really enjoyed this film, not like, I don't think it's a great film, but I think it's a solid entry in this genre, and the, base, the story is basically, Jude Law has, who I think has really embraced middle age, and I really think it looks good on him, he's, he's sloughing off his British leading man prettiness, and I think maybe he's passed it on to someone like James McAvoy, so now he's like a, sort of a tough guy on screen, I mean, he was in Dom Hemingway, Hemingway yeah. yeah, where he was really sleazy, and you know, he's letting the, uh, the hair, uh, you know, he's losing the hair, and I I think it, I think anyway I think it looks good on him. Yeah, and of course he makes fun of his whole image in Spy. That's so, right. Yeah. Um I think he's at a kind of a comfortable point in his career where he can kind of let the 
past glories I lay there and move on to more mature and more interesting work. Yeah, for sure. And, and in this one, he leads a motley collection of Russian, British, Aussie, and American submariners. They've been hired to retrieve a stash of gold from a downed Nazi sub somewhere in the sea floor off the Crimean Peninsula. Now, these are desperate men who've been screwed over all their lives, and they get a whiff of riches, and uh, they start to um, imagine a bigger share if some of the other men on the uh, submarine die. Of course, that along with mutual distrust between East and West, it provides all the motivation for shivs in the guts and more. Uh, you know, now, some of this is pretty boilerplate, uh, a direct descendants of other sub-movies of the past, which we're going to talk about. Uh, but it also owes uh, quite a debt to things like Wages of Fear and Treasure of Sierra Madre, and uh, and even some of the close-quarter fear of aliens. I think Scoot McNary is definitely uh, Paul <laughs> Reiser Ratfink in this. Yeah, it it, uh, it really took me by surprise. Of course, Kevin McDonald is uh, famous for uh, part being part of the team that gave us things like Shallow Grave and, and Train Spotting, and and it's uh, it's it's neat to see him in the director's chair here. This was supposed to open theatrically. Like I remember seeing trailers for it and seeing the posters for it up mm-hmm. at the local Googleplex, and uh, we didn't get the film in the end. It, it went. Uh, bypassed the cinema went into onto video and streaming and it, it's kind of a shame because uh, I really enjoyed watching it but the whole time I kept thinking you know this really would be a lot better on a big screen you know these are we're getting big screen performances from some of these actors in these roles you know that that, uh, that the characters are pretty pretty extreme in some cases you know uh, Ben Mendelsohn plays the uh, one of the crew members who kind of completely loses it and <laughs> in a way that only Ben Mendelsohn can uh-huh. do and uh, yeah I feel a little deprived of having that in the theater, but I, but I, you know, I worked fine on the small screen. But yeah, it, yeah, I would, I agree though, and I think part of it is that it's actually for for a sub movie, it's actually quite amazing production design. There's a, there's a certain poetry in a in the symphony of pipes and wires and cables and claustrophobic spaces, and and it's all glowing green and yellow and red, and I, I actually really like the look of the film. Yeah, well, that's something it shares in common with the with the the films like uh, like Train Spotting and. Um, uh, sunrise, I think. What was the, what was the, the Got to Stop the Sun movie? No, oh, Sunshine. Probably. Sunshine, that's yeah. it. It was yeah. Sun something, you know, which had that kind of extreme feel. I, you know, maybe even that's, you know, everything goes wrong on that mission, too. Mm-hmm. So, so sort of a similar flip side to that, that being a spaceship, this being a submarine. Um, so it, it does kind of touch on all the points, but there's, there's also that humanity in, uh, in Jude Law's character. You know, he's also thinking of family and that kind of thing. And yeah folks back home. <laughs> yeah, and, and he certainly tells stories. I know he directed, uh, Kevin McDonald also directed The Last King of Scotland, so yeah. he knows the masculine stories, and, and let's face it, this uh, genre is full of masculine tales. You know, <laughs> with a few, very few exceptions. There's lots of, basically, men you know, trying to crush other men and 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 power struggles you know hither <laughs> and yon um i think it's worth going back and and talking a little bit about some of these uh these movies i, I noticed that after the the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s it was a pretty popular genre and they were making making a lot of world war ii stories uh submarine movies and and i i read that although i haven't seen it the Cary grant starred in two of them he was in a comedy with tony curtis called operation petticoat in 1959 but he also was in a wartime drama called destination tokyo um and uh and that, i don't know if you've seen either of those i've seen operation petticoat it, it's a fun you know service comedy uh Cary grant commands a sub and a, a bunch of female nurses come aboard um and I, I feel like at some point the sub gets painted pink. I don't know what happened there. But, <laughs> um, maybe that's just a fever dream of mine. It also got turned in. There was actually a uh, 70s TV sitcom 
based on the film, which came along like 15 years after the film, I think, or something like that. Like uh-huh. decades later, somebody rem- hey, remember that old submarine movie with the nurses? Let's make that into a TV series. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody was hoping to have, recreate. You know the magic of mash or something with the submarine. Right. Uh, th- that seems to be like a likely, uh, likely uh, reason. But um, you know, and I, I did actually watch a few episodes of that when it was new. I remember seeing it on TV. But but I mean, Operation Petticoat. Uh, I think uh, Blake Edwards was involved in that. Yes, I, that's right. I, he very at least he wrote it. He might have directed it too. I'm not sure. I can't remember off the top of my head. But but uh, you know, certainly that wasn't the kind of uh, genius at work in <laughs> in, the, in the TV <laughs> series. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the, it's 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 an interesting setting for comedy, drama, horror. Uh, you know, people lose their minds in the deep, and uh, strange uh, their their inner demons come out, and and uh, it's it, it definitely has a lot of different opportunities to tell different stories. But a lot of the time, we just keep seeing the same story over <laughs> and over again. Um, I I have a fondness for these movies. I, I I'm not quite sure why. I've never you know I, I'm not even that big a fan of, of war movies per se, but uh, some, something about uh, the the possibility for tension seems to be upped dramatically in a submarine movie. Although it's funny, I was thinking about it. I thought two of my earliest movie experiences are submarine movies. Um, one being Yellow Submarine, <laughs> right? The Beatles cartoon, which of course has none of this stuff. Yes, um, it has a Yellow Submarine that takes a trippy uh, voyage to this other uh, planet uh, or other dimension, Pepperland, through the Sea of Holes, and it's all very psychedelic. And I saw that when I was like pretty young, three or four. Mm-hmm. So because I, ha- I remember having this really early. Um, Recognition of who the Beatles were and all that, you know, maybe even before they even split up. I was born in '67, um, so uh, but but uh, that at an early age made an impact on me, and uh, also a Disney film called The Boatniks, which is not terribly well remembered these days, but it starred Robert Morse, uh, who uh, in latter days we've seen on Mad Men. Uh, but at the time was a big star of musical comedies like How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And uh, he's in a brilliant film about the funeral business called uh, The Loved One. Um, you know, so he had, a, he had a kind of a brief heyday before going, he wound up just going back to Broadway after making a handful of films. But in this one, he plays an ensign who gets stuck in a, he, he gets uh, his first command, which is a really crappy little naval base where all kinds of, basically they just have to watch over yachters, right. I guess. Or maybe he's in the Coast Guard. But at any rate, uh, but you get Phil Silver's and uh, Norman Fell, most people know as Mr. Roper from uh, from Three's Company, are a bunch of diamond thieves who have stolen a one-man It's like three guys on a one-man sub <laughs> who have to try. They're trying to navigate their way out of the harbor and, and uh, have their all their diamonds hidden in a picnic lunch. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was a Disney comedy, so it was kind of interesting that Disney made these films for kids entirely populated by adults like right like it's i love the film i saw it at the drive-in as a kid and uh, there wasn't a single like now it's like oh there has to be a kid in the film for the young viewers to identify with you know, whatever I, you know i just remember seeing all these films like the boatniks and the 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 horse in the gray flannel suit where there's not a kid to be seen anywhere in sight herbie the love book and so on but um anyway i've gotten off track but those those are kind of early impressions made on me and i became kind of fascinated by you know the engineering that goes into these these amazing uh, these amazing craft and the, and the kind of people it takes to go on them and you know I, I had uh, you know growing up I had some friends whose parents were in the service and some of them served on subs until they couldn't take it anymore you know it takes wow. a, you know it takes a real mental toll on a person and some of these films really portray that quite well yeah it's true it's true but you mentioned how uh, how uh, 
you know, capable this Disney movie was and how it affected you. And, and part of this research, I went back and watched uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I had never seen before. And it oh, wow. was a real delight. Richard Fleischer uh, directed it. It came out in 1954. And it tells the, uh, the Jules Verne story of, of Captain Nemo, tortured, tortured uh, undersea captain and his incredible Nautilus submarine. Uh, played by he's played by James Mason and uh, and he he uh, he takes aboard uh, a group uh, of a small group of, of sailors. Paul Lucas as uh, he plays a French professor who's who's a scientist and and trying to understand better the you know the deep and uh, and uh, Kirk Douglas is the American sailor who's a who's a little bit of a cartoon in this. <laughs> uh, Peter Laurie's also in it and they basically through their eyes we see this man and his mission, which is kind of this anti-colonial kind of. Uh, you know, mission to destroy uh, ships of war and uh, and and live below the ocean. And he's almost like a prototypical James Bond villain, this Captain Nemo. And it's it's pretty amazing. The underwater footage is great. the The model work is is terrific, especially considering the uh, the period. Uh, I, I was I was really impressed with it. I'm surprised that they haven't tried to remake this at some point. Well, I think there was like some lousy made for cable version of it or something like that because the book obviously is in the public domain. So. Uh, you know, there's there's, uh, there's been any number of stabs at some of these Jules Verne things with varying degrees of success, but not really on the big screen. I don't mm-hmm. think no one's really taken another stab at it. But um, but of course that's you know that's a good place to start because that that movie that the book the original by Jules Verne is kind of the granddaddy of submarine stories. I mean, submarines didn't even really exist except maybe in the imagination of. Uh, of uh, Da Vinci prior to that. He, he actually sketched out some sure. ideas for submarines, you know, back during the Renaissance. But, um, you know, that story, and I believe it was filmed in the silent days. I think maybe George Melier or somebody, somebody like that. You know, oh yeah. Took, there was an earlier version. Took sure. a stab at it. Yeah. Um, but that is the definitive version. It, it, it uh, you know, that the design of the ship is iconic. It's got that great kind of weird cathedral esque kind of look to it. And, uh, you know, the, it's got that beautiful kind of Art Nouveau submarine look. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, the fight with the giant squid is great. They, I guess they Disney hated the first version of it, so they had to go back and redo it to make it better. Okay. You know, where a lot of films would have just tried to play with it in editing and just kind of leave it be. But Disney had a real fondness for this story. I think it might, might have been one of his favorites from his childhood and uh, really wanted to see it done done right. And uh, so there's, there's a there's a quality in this film that maybe other science fiction films of the day might might not have strived for i guess and and you know disney uh you know it doesn't get as much credit for special effects as he does for the animation work uh that his studio did but on the on the special effects front you know things like uh perfecting back projection and darby o'gill and the little people again you know that kind of thing yeah um, sure you know the really tried to push uh push the boundaries of what could be done on film and 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 this film uh it's a wonderful adventure, but it's a, you know it's a real leap forward too for uh, for science fiction fantasy filmmaking. So it seems to me that in the fifties, the sub movie, the submarine movie, was quite popular, and they kept making them. And you know they're very much the same at that point. Most of them are set around World War Two, and you know the sweaty men yeah. uh, are popular. Uh, you saw Helen High Water. Yeah, well, it's I, I, you're right. I think they did come into their own in the fifties, just because mm-hmm. the, the Second World War was still pretty fresh. They probably didn't want them making films about submarines during the war because that would 
give something away because they were, you know, for the states it was still pretty new technology for their navy. Um, you know, there, there's a movie Frank Capra made a submarine movie. No kidding. Just at the tail end of the silent days, uh, which has some. I, I watched some of it on YouTube. It's, it's not great quality, but there's a, a scene with a guy who gets caught in a rope that gets thrown overboard with a diving bell attack. Anyway, it's very. It was okay. actually really well done. Um, he also did a movie called Dirigible. I guess he really liked movies about large and unwieldy vehicles but but uh yeah the submarine really came into its own as a uh, as a quote-unquote movie vehicle in the 50s uh helen high water is kind of interesting it's it's actually not uh set during the second world war uh it's uh it's probably the first atomic age submarine movie uh directed by sam fuller is i think it was only the fifth movie made in the cinemascope process which is of course was the widescreen process that uh 20th century fox introduced with uh the robe uh, to counteract the popularity of 3D movies, they came up with Cinemascope, um, which was a super wide screen and had stereophonic sound, and it was meant for big spectacles like you know the Life of Jesus and that sort of thing. And uh, Hell and High Water is perfect. Submarines are kind of shaped like the wide screen, uh, you know, the rectangular, the long, uh, skinny, uh, 2.35 to one ratio seem to fit fit the submarines really well. So they, you know, that that may have had something to do with the popularity of these movies too. Just a weird practicality for for showing them on screen. So um, they got Sam Fuller to direct this movie about uh, about a secret mission that's uh, not. Uh, any government in particular, um, a bunch of scientists get together. They they find an old Japanese sub and rig it up to go to the Arctic, where supposedly the Chinese are uh, have a secret atomic base underway, and they're going to use uh, they're going to use it to start the next uh, the Third World War by dropping using. Uh, well, actually, I don't want to get too far into it, but anyway, <laughs> their plan is they they've got an atomic base in the Arctic, and they're going to use. The weapon they have up there to uh, get the Third World War uh, underway, because I guess maybe they figure they can win it. So, um, so it's kind of interesting that uh, it, it it's similar to Black Gold in that it's a it's kind of a crew of mercenaries. Black Sea, you mean? Or Black Sea. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a crew of mercenaries, and and they're not really uh, allegiant to any particular flag. They're just kind of on this mission to to find this base and destroy it, and uh, and so you get all the the tensions come into play there uh you know richard widmark is the captain and he's barely got a grip on these guys they're you know one guy's a former wrestler and they're from different countries they didn't all get along so you know that's kind of sets the tone for for a lot of these movies that, to come along afterwards but uh the, the the wrinkle here is that of course uh the science one of the scientists that's along for the ride is a woman so oh. of course you know <laughs> the, the film spends a lot of time marveling at the, uh, that idea um <laughs> you know of course she you know she proves her worth along the way uh you know in her in her um <laughs> in her silk stockings of course but uh you know so the, the, it's got that it's got that weird datedness to it you know with all the men fawning over mm-hmm. the, the female scientist played by International sensation Bella Darby, uh, yeah, remember her, of course. <laughs> and uh, she's, uh, you know, a, a, a discovery of Daryl Zanix, who made a handful of films and disappeared. I'm guessing, but um, the uh, so that's 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 the wrinkle. That's the the monkey wrench thrown into the plans here to get the men fighting over over her and you know have some fun at her expense and so on. So you know, it's it's got this kind of futuristic look but it's also got this very dated look it's, it's similar to a lot of the science fiction movies of the time you know destination moon is like what's a woman doing in space and all that kind of thing right. so um i guess there's a fun retro quality to it but but sam fuller you know is a great director and was able to work uh 
do a lot with some re- pretty limited resources. And, uh, you know, they're pretty tight on these submarine sets. It's It doesn't look like the most expensive film in the world. The model work, which is, you know, can be a problem in some of these films, isn't bad. Uh, and there's some pretty spectacular sort of action scenes towards the end of the film. But uh, but he's pretty good at ratcheting up the tension in different ways. You know, one of the professors, uh, they have to dive suddenly, and he gets his hand caught in the, 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 the hatch up top. And uh, it gets it gets kind of kind of gruesome when they have to perform an emergency operation with a pen knife kind of thing. So um, he was good at just kind of twisting those little knives along the way. And if you watch any of his films from the 50s, he, he was able to get some more adult content than you'd expect into his films. He was, you know, the, the king of the two-fisted filmmakers of that era. You know, every every photo of him, he's holding this giant cigar and just, you know, looking like he just w- rolled off the beach at D-Day, which he, he did. He was, he was part of the D-Day invasion. Right. So, um, and, and and fought in in the European theater and in, uh, in the Second World War, so you know he's got this reputation that's well earned for being a tough, two fisted kind of guy, and, and those are the kind of stories he favors. But there's also an intellectual uh, aspect to those stories that makes them more than just uh, you know rugged He Man movies. And, and Hell in High Water certainly fits fits the bill of that film. It's not as highly regarded as some of his other films, maybe because there's probably more studio interference than some of the other titles. But, uh, you know, his, his viewpoint comes in pretty loud and clear. He, uh, I noticed, I haven't seen the film. I saw a trailer and then a few, a few scenes. But, but I noticed that the cinemascope uh, is often shot, like, where you, at, at one side, like, you're not looking down the hull of the, uh, of the, the submarine. You're actually looking at it broadsides. Yeah. So, so it actually doesn't quite feel, you don't get quite the claustrophobia that you do might no, do in some, in some of these films. It does feel like a set. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting perspective, though, though it's great in some ways because you get a lot of detail off in the corners of the frame. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, they only made a couple of these films to begin with at that point. So, um, uh, I don't know. The filmmakers have quite realized that you, you really need to close in, close in the lens, and yeah, and, uh, and have close objects it on the in the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And some of the other films that I watched did a much better job of that. For sure. sure. Well, I wanted to mention just quickly the Enemy Below, which was another submarine movie from the fifties, uh, from fifty-seven, and I, I wasn't a huge fan of it. Although I really like Robert Mitchum, who who's the the captain in it. Uh, there's a lot of of war philosophizing in the film he plays uh plays a sort of uh, destroyer captain who is hunting a u-boat and uh learns to have a begrudging respect for <laughs> the uh the submarine commander played by kurt jurgens now we are sort of allowed to like kurt jurgens maybe more than some war movies of this note because he sort of resents the nazi establishment so so you feel like this they and they both share a lot of the sort of philosophies of war is like damn that we're out here and having to do this and we're forced to do this and it's all quite bad uh and you know the the film conspires to put these guys you know against one another and and by the end of the film i don't think it's a huge surprise or spoiler they they find a chance to meet and through some pretty actually pretty awful model work (laughs) uh the submarine you know comes comes to the surface and there's there's some fires and explosions and uh and you know and then they they get a chance to share their philosophies by the end you know i guess if you're a completist i might recommend it or if you really are into robert mitchum but uh but i don't think it's one of the best of these sub movies that i've seen yeah i'm really into robert mitchum and i i saw this years ago and you know found it pretty forgettable even despite his presence but you know he did make some not great movies i can watch anything with robert mitchum in it pretty much but pretty much uh, yeah the yakuza is actually one of my favorites oh of his. that's a great film yeah uh but uh yeah here he's 
you know, sometimes he does kind of sleepwalk through films, and this, this is probably one of those examples. But uh, yeah, I do like the idea of the the, the fact that the submarine uh, commander isn't so big on uh, the National Socialist Party of Germany uh, is actually pretty accurate. Uh-huh. Um, and I think this comes into a play into another another famous German submarine movie that uh, I won't uh, discuss it just at the moment, but it also makes the same point that uh, yes. And probably with more historical detail, but that uh, the the submarine crews, uh, the German ones, were I believe they were sort of the more longer serving seamen, and and that they were, you know, the they were the sort of the old guard of the, of the navy in a way that they they'd earned the right to to work on these boats, and and uh, so by the but they're also kind of isolated from the rest of society by being serving on U boats and stuff, so they weren't as sucked into the whole. Nazi thing because they were kind of like this own nation separate to themselves you know right they, they believed in the, their country but not so much the philosophy behind it because they were kind of part of the old order I guess sure. you know they were the more senior established uh, naval members that that was always an issue too I guess you know early on you know in the dominance of of Hitler and the and the Nazis is that uh, there's some resistance within the more established ranks of the army because all those people were weeded out of course but uh, with the submarines you know you you kind of go with what you know and use the people that know how to how to run those right. those machines and that's kind of the last standing ground for for the kind of the old guard that that resisted the the new order as it were so it's it's interesting to see it in this film you know as opposed to you know later in in uh, another German sub film. I enjoy how coy you're being about this uh, other <laughs> German sub film. Well, we're yeah, talk about every, for a while. yeah I, I, everybody knows the one we're talking about. Yeah, so yeah. We'll, we'll get to it later. But but uh, but it's it's interesting to see that expressed this early early on. Sure. You know, um, you know because with, with historical hindsight, we know more about uh, the life of, of those German U-boat sailors. Um, so I guess this was pretty pretty on the nose for its time. Yeah. Now, we should also talk about Run Silent, Run Deep. Now, this takes a look at the sub-battles out in the Pacific. Uh, Robert Wise, who I mentioned before, who would go on to direct Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, this is, uh, is, is a story of uh, Clark Gable, who plays Commander Richardson. Now, his submarine is torpedoed basically in the opening shots. Yeah. And uh, he somehow survives and gets a desk job back uh, in the States. Uh, but then he gets a chance to command another submarine, pretty much usurping the opportunity for command of that sub's current XO, the uh, executive officer, Lieutenant Bledsoe, played by Burt Lancaster. So what Richardson winds up doing is he runs these repetitive drills and he butts up against Bledsoe and the crew who is who is uh, very uh, loyal to, to Bledsoe. And um, what we discover Richardson really wants is revenge against the Japanese and against the 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 destroyer that destroyed that that you know crippled his previous ship so um you know as it goes along there is starts to become a begrudging respect between the officers uh the the film also stars jack warden and don rickles interestingly <laughs> yeah. uh and it, this is actually a pretty great submarine movie I, I felt like they really got the formula right this time I, I really enjoyed this film now i it's actually based on a book which i think was written by a former sub commander and uh, I read the book way back when, I, maybe even in high school, and I remember being really impressed with the level of technical detail in the book. Like you reading the book, you really felt like you had an idea of how these work, how these machines work, what kind of 
you know, coordination you need in the crew to, to run these efficiently and, and properly. And um, you get a little bit of that in the film, especially when they're running the drills. But they don't belabor the point the way the book, uh, you know, obviously in a book you have more room to provide that kind of detail. But I thought that they did strive for a certain authenticity in this film. And uh, probably having that uh, template of the, of the novel doesn't hurt. It's I mean, it's kind of like Moby Dick with a submarine, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the obsessed captain who will stop at nothing, and even if it, uh, you know, costs him everything he's got. But, um, you know, uh, thankfully it doesn't, that that uh, faithfulness to veracity, which I think is also a Robert Wise trait. You know, I think he tries to get uh, things feeling as real as possible. I mean, bef- before the scene, he made one of the, the great, science fiction films of the 50s the day of the earth is still which right, may, sure. may be the greatest science fiction film you know maybe it's tied with forbidden planet but you know as far as you know really warm characters and and uh, you know an, an interesting look at you know visitor from space what if one did come to earth and i think it was it was definitely uh, ahead of its time and and set the standard for that decade and then later even stuff like west side story it's a musical but he wanted the gang to feel very gang-like uh-huh. you know and shoot on the streets of new york to give it that that feeling of, of realness i think it's uh you know the, the weird thing about Wise is that he could make a film in any genre. It didn't matter. He could make a war film and make it one of the best war films. Make the best film noirs. You know, he made this film called Born to Kill, which is one of the most savage film noirs of the period. Uh, with Lawrence Tierney as just this vicious killer, a psychopath. You know, and it's hard to believe it's the same guy who made The Sound of Music. So, right. Right. Uh, you know, this film that's often derided as being saccharine and syrupy, but yet he made some of the toughest movies of the of the noir period. So. You know, he he basically just whatever served the story, yeah, essentially, and 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 made it, you know, ring home and feel true. And I I, I think he kind of went the extra mile here. The model work is very good. Yeah, it is good. Um, it's much better than you know uh, than than uh, than I'd seen previously. Certainly better than the enemy below. Certainly, be- yeah, and and better than Hell and High Water too, which isn't bad. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, here, you know, it's just lit right so that uh, you know I think they use lighting really well to mask any of the flaws you might see the models so it's some of it's kind of clever trickery but that's what that's all special effects are anyway so um and uh, and the rivalry between gable and and lancaster is is nicely handled it's not too extreme there uh-huh. is a begrudging admiration between the two but they also butt heads quite a bit and apparently that was uh, true behind the scenes as well they did not uh-huh. get along um you know apparently lancaster making fun of gable for his age and this is only a couple of years before he died uh you know he died uh in 61 i think or so uh and this is what 59 i think so he's yeah. he's only or 58 he's only a few years from the grave here i mean he didn't know it but um so you know lancaster making fun of him for his age seems seems a bit <laughs> bit raw but uh but it that's sort of what happens in the film you know he he presents uh, having his command taken away from him but he's you know he knows what side his bread's buttered on and and then the crew is the usual bunch of misfits and stuff like that but you know don rickles in his i, I guess his first major dramatic role is, is actually pretty good yeah he makes an impression <laughs> yeah for sure. um from what i've read uh, it was supposed to be frank gorshin <laughs> but, <laughs> wow but don rickles is fine and yeah. uh you know before going on to star in those great uh, dramatic features uh bikini beach party and <laughs> beach blanket bingo uh-huh. <laughs> he had an odd film career i mean obviously playing vegas and doing stand-up was his bread and butter but you know he, he was he was a great screen presence yeah, when, sure. he wanted, when he felt like it um so th- yeah there's there's a lot that's kind of odd and weird about this film but uh it really was kind of the naplu ultra of the, of the submarine film for totally. some time and you know i i want to just shoot forward to 2002 here just because i saw these movies in quite close proximity i couldn't believe how much k19 the widowmaker took from
from Run Silent, Run Deep, without actually being a remake. Like, in <laughs> so st- terms of story, this is, of course, the Catherine Bigelow uh, sub-drama starring Harrison Ford, Liam Neeson, and Peter Sarsgaard. And uh, this was... I, I wanted to see it since I, I heard about it. I'd actually never seen it when it came out in 2002, but I know since then that it was shot partly here in Halifax. And uh, the, the sort of... Which doubled as a Russian you know, industrial town circa 1961, (laughs) interestingly. Um, But basically, the very same dynamic that Gable and Lancaster exists between Ford and Neeson's character, where uh, Ford is the sort of senior officer who comes in and is determined to run the ship uh, basically the way he sees it and Neeson is the is the officer who has the uh, loyalty of the crew and basically has to stand aside and take orders from Ford, both of whom are, are affecting, you know, dodgy Russian accents because apparently it's all supposed to take place, you know, on this Russian submarine and, and purportedly uh, based on a true story of yeah. a nuclear age Russian sub crew in 1961 sent out to test to see if they could launch an interballistic missile from sea, which they are able to do, but the, the sub is so poorly put together at that point the whole construction of it was so rushed that uh, it, it got the nickname the Widowmaker because so many people died making it and then while they're at sea the, the reactor threatens to melt down uh, at which point the film becomes actually quite a moving uh, I, I mean I didn't love the movie and I, I don't know that I'd necessarily recommend it but there is there is the, soul, the, the sailors basically that are on duty at the time that the meltdown are basically required to go in there and fix it even though they don't have radiation suits because the they didn't they didn't get them or something. Yeah, they, oh, they didn't think they need them. <laughs> they didn't huh? think they need them. So yeah. they have to go into this radioactive area and and make these repairs. And there's this long sequence where a series of people go in and then come back all burned up from the what they're dealing with. And and there's actually some good moments between Ford and Neeson. And again, these commanders find a begrudging respect for one another. And it is just like step by step, including all the repetitive drills. Uh, it's just like Run Silent, Run Deep. It's just, it's almost, it's crazy how how similar they are. Well, I'm guessing Catherine Bigelow probably binged on sub-movies prior to making her own just to see what to do and what not to do. And and, uh, I, I to be honest, I haven't watched this film since it came out. I mean, it was a big deal when it came out, certainly here. Sure. uh, Because it was so much of it was filmed here. But, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it at the time. I, I, you know, I I knew Harrison Ford wasn't going to have a great Russian accent, but he gets an A for effort, I think, sure, you know, okay. for attempting it. I mean, he I, he took a lot of flack for it at the time. I remember a lot of reviews made fun of it, and, and Neeson, of course, I, again, not a guy for whom accents, I mean, maybe he has even more of a hard road to hoe with his strong Irish brogue, you know, Shades of uh, Sean Connery yeah, in another seriously. submarine movie, which we'll <laughs> yeah. probably talk about. We'll, we'll definitely but, talk about it, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I liked the story. I thought I thought, uh, I liked the, I thought they got the period pretty right mm-hmm. um yep. you know i thought Halifax the greatest vladivostok or whatever whatever <laughs> yeah. remote soviet naval port it was supposed to be filling in for and uh in the, and and the crisis uh with with the the nuclear meltdown or whatever on port i thought was fairly well portrayed and sarsgaard is great I, he's an actor who who I, who I quite quite like over yeah, the years yeah I, I do too i really like him and and i thought harrison ford turned in one of his better performances of the last I don't know, 15, 20 mm-hmm. years. Uh, you know, he, he's tended to sleepwalk through most stuff he's been in. Yeah. Since yeah. I used to, I used to pretend that in regarding Henry, that the, the bullet he took in the head was, was actually real and, <laughs> and that it affected all of his latter day performances. Like after, like everything from after working girl kind of just, you know, going uh, Harrison Ford on autopilot. But I, uh, that's not, 
necessarily the case, but uh, this is, a, I thought, one of the better roles that he turned in in that yeah, time. I have, yeah, I, I can see that, and I, I actually like the drama between the acts. Certainly the stuff that happened in the third act, uh, you know, brought the film up in a way that I felt like, and maybe maybe because of similarity to Run Silent, Run Deep, which really impressed me, I was just like, seriously, are they remaking it, or they're not? <laughs> Clearly they're not, because it's a different story, but there were so many similar elements. I felt like, well, maybe it's just a little too close. Yeah, I guess they just grafted some familiar elements on to this incident um, of uh, that that really happened, and of course, I, you know, having seen Run Silent Run Deep many years later, uh, hadn't occurred to me. Until <laughs> <laughs> it's like this all seems vaguely familiar, and uh, you know, now I kind of want to go back and rewatch the the Widowmaker again, just because you know my memories of it tend to be fairly fond. That it wasn't perfect, but uh, you know, a for effort. Well, maybe you should. We'll talk then. Yeah. In a world where podcasts are becoming one of the more prevalent forms of entertainment, why do a Patreon? Well, here at Lends Me Your Ears, we want the listener to be able to show their support for us as we provide you with great entertainment and fun facts and trivia about movies. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, you can go to Patreon.com and show your support. We do the show in a fabulous studio with great production values, quality audio, editing, music, sound, lights, camera. Well, we're getting there. But we'd like to have a YouTube channel. We'd like to do some live events and make Lens Me Your Ears a more enveloping kind of public experience. Those ones and zeros aren't cheap, and, and uh, you can help us go down to the math store and pick up some, some fresh and extremely luxurious ones to make this show the best that it can be. So consider donating through Patreon, and you'll get some great incentives. You won't believe what's, what's coming along. And do it because Zuzu, the podcast parakeet, says so. To learn more about the campaign, visit patreon.com slash lensmeyourears, or if you're feeling naughty, patreon.com lensmeyourears. So we have talked about a few great submarine movies and maybe maybe ones that are less great, but uh, I actually went back to watch Ice Station Zebra or Zebra, depending on where <laughs> you're from. I, uh, this Zedbra. Is, this is one that I really liked from when I was a child. Uh, uh, the whole... Uh, Alistair McLean vibe, you know, Men on a Mission. This was these were movies that I, I really enjoyed when I was a kid. Um, this is directed by John Sturgis, who made a lot of great entertainments, including Gunfight at OK Corral and The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. So, you know, and, the, and he's he's brought aboard Rock Hudson and Patrick McGowan and Ernest Borgnine and Jim Brown. So, I mean, these are <laughs> these are manly men. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so the story basically is that. Uh, Rock is Commander Faraday, who is a sub-captain tasked with sailing up to the North Pole where a satellite has gone down. And he takes with him Mr. Jones, uh, played by McGowan. He's a British spy. Now, it turns out the satellite was carrying a very important piece of equipment, a camera that was developed by the Brits, uses United States technology, but then took photos of U.S. missile installations and somehow also took photos of the Soviet installations. It, it's a little <laughs> confusing, but it, it's, it basically means that everybody wants it. It's the MacGuffin of the film. Um, uh, and and everyone is maybe to blame. So uh, all of the forces meet, the Brits, the Americans, the Russians, they face off on the ice pack where the uh, satellite has been recovered. Now, 
what I enjoyed about the film was the footage of the submarine going beneath the ice. I thought this was pretty well done and pretty hypnotic. Uh, but otherwise, it's a pretty suspense-free movie. And you'd think, you know, um, submarine movies, it's one the one thing they have to do is be suspenseful. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Rock Hudson just, he emotes like a cardboard box. <laughs> and, and Ernest Borgnine has one of the worst Russian accents in movie history, I think. But McGowan is cool. And I mean, if you're a fan of The Prisoner, you know, there's a lot of reason to watch it for him. Definitely, definitely. I, yeah, the 60s were not kind to submarines <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, you know, a lot of movies got made involving them. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, the Irwin Allen one, is probably, right. probably the best one. But uh, There was the Bedford incident, which is kind of a submarine movie. Yeah, uh, and, and the one that sticks in my mind uh, also, it's not so much a submarine as more of an intramarine. Of course, a fantastic voyage. Right. Where they shrink, <laughs> yeah. shrink down a sub and put it, inject it into, I think, Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, he's on the crew, I think. No. But, uh, but at any rate, it's, it's, it's a submarine within the human body, which um, gives us a whole bunch of uh, great un- possibilities with some really interesting special effects for the time. And also, uh, it prompted a great episode of Archer, the uh, spy comedy cartoon. So, so I had that other extra bonus. But, uh, they're very much films of their time, I think, in a lot of ways. And, yeah. and Ice Station Zebra feels like such a 60s movie. It does. Um, and unfortunately, the 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 ice pack is is very studio. Like, you, up to that point, you know, I, I kind of was going along with it. But once once the final, like, half hour of the movie happens at the North Pole, it's, it's clearly in a studio space. No one, you can't see anyone's breath. It just, yeah, it just starts to fall apart. Yeah, I remember even watching, I think I watched it on Laserdisc, <laughs> and even, even with the reduced uh, um, uh, resolution, I could, it just felt fake and phony at mm-hmm. that point. Uh, you know, and the whole idea of submarines going under the Arctic ice was a pretty new one at the time, uh, and that's something just as fascinating as space travel in some ways. Um, yeah, and that part all, I really liked. I, I like that part of the film. But uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's something about the, the, the way it's lit and everything just gives it that, that patina of, of late 60s filmmaking. Um, you know, of course, his biggest fan was Howard Hughes, who... Uh, Owned, actually owned the TV station in Las Vegas where he would call them up at four in the morning and tell them to run Ice Station Z. No kidding. And they would throw it on. You know, he was a, he was a night owl, so they'd, in the middle of the night when no one was watching, presumably, they'd run Ice Station Zebra That's just so awesome. he could see it one more time. I don't but, know how many times that happened, but it's it's one but, of those great moments of lore that's, you know, the, the the film might be more famous than that for that than for anything that's actually yeah, absolutely. in it, the film itself. Absolutely, and that makes it make you want to see it, just to find, <laughs> try to figure out what well, it is that he liked so much. Yeah, about. I think that was my uh, my uh, impulse to watch it the first time around. Yeah. Like, what was his fascination with this yeah. movie? And, you know, I thought, well, this guy was a master of aeronautics. Maybe there's something about submarines that really tickled his fancy, or maybe just like Rock Hudson. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, in my efforts to try to be comprehensive, I also watched a fairly... Um, you know, mediocre submarine movie called Grey Lady Down from 1978. This is a Charlton Heston picture. It's a disaster movie more than a submarine submarine movie. It's about a U.S. Navy sub that's struck by a freighter and sinks, and it prompts the entire Navy rescue force to go and find it. I think the problem with the film, uh, and it's kind of the same problem I had with the final countdown when we talked about it in our time travel uh, podcast, is that it, it's more or less a military equipment porn <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's like it's masquerading as a movie, and it's it's really just a chance to show off all this cool stuff that the U.S. Navy has to rescue rescue their equipment. Uh, it is a pretty interesting cast, along with Charlton Heston. You got David Carradine, Stacy Keach, Ned Beatty, and uh, Canadian tough guy actor Stephen McCaddy, ah. as well as Ronnie Cox. So you know these are these are pretty cool 
cool actors to be in a movie together, but I wish I could recommend it. I unfortunately can't. Yeah, not a film that's aged well. It's it's kind of part of that um, that that whole uh, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, Raise the Titanic kind of undersea rescue mission thing that was really popular for a while there in the seventies. But uh, you know, unfortunately, they. Uh, some expense was spared <laughs> in the making of some of these films. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm kind of a Charlton Heston completist, so I guess it falls under that. You know, it, it's fun to watch him do his tough guy act in pretty much any circumstances. But um, yeah, this would not be at the top of the list no. of, of, of his films to check off if you're making your way through his catalog. Um, I should say, I think it's about time since chronologically we're kind of there to mention that German. Oh yes, that certain German submarine that you talked about, uh, and it's Das Boot, which you know. I think if I was talking about my actual favorite submarine movie, it is still The Hunt for Red October, which we'll, we'll get to. Uh, but I can't deny that Das Boot is probably the quintessential submarine movie and maybe the greatest one. I mean, it, it's kind of the last word. If you wanted to just watch one submarine movie that really gets it, this gets it. And and you could choose from the two-and-a-half-hour version or the three-and-a-half-hour version <laughs> that both exist now. Yes, that's true. On one fascinating Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's really something. This is from 1981. Wolfgang Peterson uh, directs, and he went on to a, a so-so career in Hollywood, I would say. But, but you know, even if he never made another movie, he would have uh, made his mark with this one. Um, this is is kind of an amazing look at what life probably was like for for U-boat crews, uh, you know, and it's so claustrophobic. And he does something that I hadn't seen in 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 submarine movies before. Is what he moves the camera through the um, down through the hull, so from compartment to compartment, uh, as if it's sort of on a tr- tracking actors through these various spaces. Uh, it makes for incredibly close quarters and incredibly claustrophobic. Uh, and then I also notice something he does is is he has the camera rock back and forth during scenes where there's not there's just conversation going on. So you're constantly having the feeling of the boat moving backwards and forwards with the the current or with the the passage through through the ocean and uh, and l- objects that are hanging from the ceiling like clocks and stuff all rock and sway. So you have this constant sense of motion which really gives you that sense of being in the space. Yeah, I, I, for me, it's it's the greatest of the sub-films. And, mm-hmm. and just because it does invest a lot of time in the characters uh, even before they ever set out to sea. Um, and it, uh, it it really is about the men and, and how they cope in this, uh, this unbelievably hard-to-imagine existence of, of being undersea for, for weeks at a time. And, and uh, you know, with all these weird perils coming at you from from every direction um and and peterson just has a has a a way of kind of putting you in the action it's it's a shame that he didn't have a career that kind of continued after that i think in the line of fire the Clint yeah Eastwood, like he's done some action movies know, and they're totally fine movie. yeah but but they're just not quite like this <laughs> yeah that well it happens to a lot of foreign directors <laughs> in hollywood <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. case you know john woo Case in point, you know, mm-hmm. face off is great, but then you got paycheck, right? So, <laughs> things right. like that. So, so um, here he just had such a great feel for the material, and it was determined not to replicate what had gone before. I think in a lot of ways, or you know, had, had done additional research into things like parts of the experience that hadn't been seen in films before. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they're really determined to get it right, and and um, you know, as as technical a, a film as something like Run Silent Run Deep is. Um, this went the extra mile in getting the emotional 
impact of being in, you know on a sardine basically yes. <laughs> in a can and uh you know I, I actually got to interview um herbert gronemeyer plays the the journalist in this film i interviewed him years ago uh, in connection with his music career uh you know he's kind of like the, the german springsteen if you can imagine wow. such a thing uh but uh you know i was really curious to ask him about das boot and uh, he just talked about the the, the relentless rehearsal they uh-huh. went through to get the, those camera movements right, correct, and right. you know, it's considering it's such an epic. They spent a lot of time and energy on it. You know, it's like, like almost like they were counting on this film to kind of save the German film industry in a way. So, and it, maybe in a way it did. It was a huge international success, even if even though his his longer cut didn't surface for for years afterwards. But uh, you know, the the amount of effort that went into making you feel the sweat and the yeah. the the rivets popping and the you know <laughs> the skin of the sub bulging and all that stuff it just uh and and the effort that went into the soundtrack i mean it just seems like no you know no detail was overlooked in this yeah film. yeah do you do you have a, an opinion on whether or not the uh the director's cut which is the longer cut is any is is worth seeing versus the the theatrical cut we're seeing uh i think the th- uh, you know i'm i'm kind of on an anti long movie <laughs> binge right now so it's it's definitely worth seeing it's it's obviously more character stuff for the most part sure. so i definitely wouldn't start there i would watch the shorter version first and then uh maybe a year later come back to the longer version just let it breathe a little bit fair enough so, though we've talked about Das Boot, and I've recognized that it is the the great submarine movie, my favorite from the genre, I think, is The Hunt for Red October from 1990. And part of that is due to my 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 love for spy thrillers and how this film is a submarine thriller and a spy thriller. It kind of crosses over, you know, the the Tom Clancy thing. And this is directed by John McTiernan, of, who of course had enormous success with Die Hard. I think this was his film right after Die Hard. And he brought all of that amazing sense of action and and uh, uh, and just movement uh, and mo- moving parts, different moving parts working together to this film. Uh, basically, it's a story of uh, of and it's funny when this came out. It came out. I happen to know on March the second, nineteen ninety, and it was a little out of step with the year it came out, and because it came out after the fall of the wall. That's right. But it's pretty much a Cold War thriller. Um, and it's because it takes place in 1984, where you know, and the book was written in the early 80s. Uh, and I just think it's an it's a total classic. Now, pretty much what it's about is is uh, Sean Connery who musters all of the considerable gravitas at his disposal, <laughs> aided by a great hairpiece, by the way. He's Marco Ramius, who is the uh, the USSR the the sub captain who tests all the big Russian subs, and accordingly, he's taking out the brand new Red October. Now, this is a nuclear vessel that has something called a Caterpillar drive, which is cutting-edge tech at the time, and it makes the sub undetectable by U.S. sonar systems. Now, this thing, as they say, could park itself off Long Island and rain hot death on the East Coast before anyone would know about it. So... um uh, what happens is that uh, he takes it out, but he is so sick of these games of war, he basically uh, decides to take over the ship and deliver it to the Americans. But uh, he's kind of proud, and he sends a letter to the Kremlin that he's going to do this, uh, which you know really uh, annoys the Soviets, and they <laughs> send out all their boats after him, and uh, including one led by Captain Tupolev, played by Stellan Skarsgård. Uh, now, all of this gets the attention of the Americans, 
and they bring in this consultant, this CIA analyst played by by Alec Baldwin, who's very funny in the role. He's great in this. He's I, really it's a good. Shame you didn't do more. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he you know for a while there it looked like he was going to be a leading star action hero, but but it I mean he did for a little while, but it didn't quite work out for him. So fortunately, his his uh, his sense of humor prevailed, and now he's oh, mostly for sure. known for as a comedic actor. But yeah, I'd like to see. I wish he could have taken another stab at Jack Ryan. Oh, to, for sure, for sure. I would have liked to have seen him in some of the movies that. Harrison Ford made, but uh, anyway, so he plays Jack Ryan, and uh, he has an insight into Ramius. He's written books about this guy, and uh, he understands that uh, that Ramius might be defecting, and that Ramius might have uh, have assembled a small crew of defectors, including this guy named Vasily, his right hand man Sam Neill, who is awesome <laughs> in the movie. Um, and uh, and then on the American side, we have uh, a group of great characters, including Admiral Greer, played by James Earl Jones. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Jones, Courtney B. Vance, and even Scott Glenn, who plays Bart Mancuso, who's the grizzled sailor in charge of the USS Dallas, the American submarine, and he is really hardcore in this. Uh, and, you know, all these great character actors really bring something to a film, you know, which is largely interiors inside these submarines as they sail around each other and jockey for position and strategy. Uh, and so, yeah, so Ryan figures out that that what what Ramius might be up to, and uh, and then you know they try to basically work all these these as the machines of war come to a to a boiling point, they try to undercut the possibility of nuclear war happening. Uh, and it's it's a wonderful ensemble piece. It's great, lots of suspense. And uh, it does everything that a submarine, I think, movie should do, which is just grab you and hold on to you for the running time. Yeah, you talked about uh, equipment porn with uh, with Grey Lady Down, but I think Tom Clancy is probably the king of uh, of that genre. Yeah, and, it's true. I can't deny that. You know, yeah. but thank, <laughs> thankfully, he also knows how to spin a good yarn, and uh, this this film is probably the you know one of the ultimate examples of that. I mean, the guy owned his own sub, didn't he? Didn't like. The, either he bought one or the military gave him an old declassified sub. It was, <laughs> it was parked uh, in, in back of his estate on Chesapeake Bay. I think I might have even spotted it from one of the bridges through Maryland uh, when I was down there oh, as yeah. a kid. But, um, you know, so so this this film is really in love with its subject matter. I and mean, that's not a bad thing. It really... Uh, you know, believes in this uh, this battle and uh, and has fun with it too along the way. So it's not it's not there's some gravitas there, especially in the presence of people like Connery. But uh, at the same time, uh, it's there's a certain deftness about it too that McTiernan brings to it. You know, and like you say, his his ability to move within a space and and give you that that kind of mental um, geometry of what of what we're dealing with uh, is really really superb. Um, and uh, wasn't it Connery's? Isn't he Ukrainian? That's the thing. He's not Russian. Yes, that's he's right. Ukrainian, so he's got that Ukrainian pride. Yes, uh, and and this kind of loathing for his, his Russian bosses, his Russian superiors. So that that's a that's a fun little bit of insight which had never really occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, until I saw this film. So there's there's lots of nice character touches uh, that that go along with the the kind of international tension that's seething above the sea level. It does, and it, it has a couple of, just a couple of small things which distinguish it as a movie outside of sub- submarine movies. One is a great way in which they take 
our perception of the way people talk from Russian to English, because at the beginning, the Russians speak Russians and the Americans speak English, but they do a little camera trick, which indicates that we're now understanding Russian. Yes. They switch into English, which is, I don't think I've ever seen it done this way before in movies, and it is just great. Like, uh, it's, it's so good. The 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas, uh, yes. where they're sitting around the, the, the campfire or whatever, and it gradually turns into English. That's also so. a McTiernan film. Oh, well, there you so go. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. You're right. That was really well done, too. So McTiernan, clearly, he he, he, he introduced this technique, and it, and it works well. I also really like that politically, you know, a lot of these movies are about men and loyalty to, to war and all, and some a fairly jingoistic uh, machismo kind of stuff, whereas I think politically, this film's where one of the more calmer and reasonable uh, perspectives on on the subject of war, where the idea that educated minds on either side are kind of the heroes, not the like gung ho yeah. uh, characters, and and I, I like the idea of of the world where these terrible weapons of war, these these submarines exist. Uh, we should feel safer that uh, that the war the the people there are people amongst the warmongers who are willing to you know risk their lives, sacrifice their lives in order to maintain a certain kind of balance and understanding between enemies. Um, you know, in terms of philosoph- philosophy uh, in the movies, I can get behind that. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think there are people that are a little more philosophical uh, in the Pentagon and in the Kremlin, but it, for some reason, I don't feel quite so secure in that knowledge. Well, at least film. we're still here. You know, yeah, this is a few. good sign. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, this film had me from start to finish. I've watched it in years. I, I'd kind of like to revisit it and, uh, you know, just try not to cringe at that last final bit of bad back back projection yeah, that, in the that final... kind of kills the, the aura for me in a way. But at the, even at the time when it came out, I just remember thinking, oh, that's maybe yeah. that shot should have been redone. Yeah, but, I agree. That is a, there's a bit of cheesy shot in that final one when the submarine goes up the river. Yeah, aren't uh, they sailing into like Maine or something yeah, like that? Like yeah. just, just down the street from us? Yeah, basically. pretty much. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of fun to think about. Um, I should also, I want to say a special kudos to Tim Curry, who plays the most anxious and gullible <laughs> medical officer in the Russian Navy. He's great in it. And and something that the Hunt for Red October has given to the genre going forward is the use of, uh, in the soundtrack, of male choirs. Because <laughs> yes. male, like, male choirs are used quite consistently in this, and then they're used again in Crimson Tide, and then again, I noticed, in K-19. Yes, So it's, it's I think it's indicative of... I don't know, Russian, because it, it makes me think of, of Russia and some of the Russian music. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But it certainly brings a he, you know a heavy kind of intensity to the to the. Oh, yeah, those Russian men's choruses, they tour all over the place. Yeah, there you go. So. Um, and, and you know what? Mentioning Crimson Tide, maybe that's a way, a place to conclude our look at, at submarine movies uh, that started with, with the Black Sea. Uh, Crimson Tide is the Tony Scott film from 1995 and uh and it again deals with this dynamic of the uh the captain who's bullheaded and the the executive officer and 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 a struggle for power on the bridge of a ship uh denzel washington plays the educated sailor who's come aboard at a time of crisis uh in uh, you know the russians are got their their fingers on the triggers basically gene hackman is the the veteran sailor who uh who's been captaining subs his whole life and that's all he knows and he's not a man of nuance he's he's just a man of action uh and uh so there's 
there's trouble, and what happens is they get a, mes- a message they got to fire the fire the rockets at Russia, but then they get another message that's cut off, and Washington's character suggests that they can't launch because they don't know what that second message said, and Hackman says they must. So, uh, so <laughs> that's the battle for the key. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is a there's a lot of Dutch angles and a lot of red in Crimson <laughs> Tide, uh, and uh, and a lot of great uh, character actors. Viggo Mortensen has a, a solid early role as as one of the uh, sailors. James Gandolfini is in it as well, and George Zunza, uh, you know, and uh, I really, I really quite enjoyed it. It feels like a less sophisticated version of uh, of Hunt for Red October, but still really entertaining within the genre. Yeah, I think it at the time it suffered a little bit in comparison to Hunt for Red October coming out just a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't really do it any favors, but Tony Scott uh, is just the king of of the kind of sleek. You know, uh, you know, action film with you know more style or substance uh, takes takes precedence, and 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 in this film, I I think that's definitely the case. I don't think it's necessarily got the same investment in its material or its or its uh, setting or you know the 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 whole uh, submarine aspect as films like Hunt for October or Run Silent Run Deep, which is another kind of the dueling commanders thing, which is like. Like you know, how many of these dueling commanders are there in the, in the Navy? Well, we've often, seen a lot of them, and there are know, yeah, there are more more out there. I'm sure. Yeah, it's just really man, <laughs> chain of command is that that fragile these days. But um, but even so, you know, it, it's uh, he's got a different goal here than uh, than those other films. I guess it's it's more about presenting a slick entertainment with some some you know high velocity actors, and uh, you know it, it it does the trick. It's it's yes. certainly uh, got a lot of. A lot of clout, a lot of bang for your buck. As it yeah, were. and one of the things about it that that is fun to when you rewatch a movie like this is, is going in with the knowledge that Tarantino was a script doctor, and they brought him in, I guess, to clarify a few scenes. But if I had to guess what mo- what parts of the film that he wrote, there is a discussion of the Silver Surfer. Yes, and who that's wrote definitely the, is the, the Silver Surfer. <laughs> so, so whether or not the Kirby or the Mobius Silver Surfer is the best <laughs> Silver Surfer. So there's that one. There's also a conversation about Star Trek, and then there's this final conversation deep in the third act which is about Lippenzaner stallions uh, which uh, which again it's like it's it's these two very A-type macho uh, sailors you know discussing a subject about which they both know a little bit and trying to trump one another as they wait for the final word on whether or not they need to launch the missiles or whether it was a good thing or a bad thing and uh, and yeah it's it's very entertaining but if, if I you know maybe he had his hand in some other parts of the film but it might suspicion is those those are the Tarantino scenes well obviously they worked together uh, previously on, on um, that uh, Christian Slater movie yeah True Romance True Romance yeah and uh, you know and worked quite well together on that it's, it's it's almost like he was trying to subvert the movie a little bit and try and get away from you know the standard tough guyness, and it's 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 a nice touch. I don't. It it's. I think it's more jarring than than helpful. But <laughs> it. Uh, you know, like I say, I I didn't love the film as much uh, when it came out, and I I'd probably enjoy it more today. I think maybe over time. Well, as part of the a part of the genre, I think it's. Uh, I think it's fun, and it, it certainly fits and and entertaining. But uh, yeah, as you say, the uh, the dueling command commander thing, the p- power struggle thing, man, that that is. That is huge in these movies. You know, you just can't, you, just can't, you know, we watch any number of them. You can't get away from it. Well, 
Well, that wraps up this week's multi-layered submarine sandwich of movies set, as The Little Mermaid says, under the sea. Ah, ah, ah. Don't forget to download us and subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And uh, if you feel good about the show, rate and review us while you're on there. Also, look for our page on Facebook and contact us on Twitter at at LensMeYourEars. And if you're feeling generous, you can always look for our Patreon at patreon.com slash LensMeYourEars. Thanks for joining us. I'm Stephen Cook, and for my friend Karsten Knox, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next Lens Me Your Ears. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox, and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lens Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at VSoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.